You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season four, episode three. Sometimes the most compelling art and spiritually nourishing songwriting comes after a challenging season. Though for singer-songwriter Audrey Assad, her most thought-provoking work appeared after a gut-wrenching deconstruction of her faith alongside crippling battles with anxiety. In fact, for Audrey, it was that very maze of emotions that resulted in four years of near silence between her last original album and the immensely awaited Evergreen, which just released this year. In this episode, I talk with Audrey about her journey from the brink of nihilism to the fertile ground of rebirth and hope, which is her album, Evergreen. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview with Audrey at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. If you'd like to support the creation of these conversations and join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective, you can do so at this same link, patreon.com slash makersandmystics. This is my interview with singer-songwriter Audrey Assad. Well, Audrey, thank you so much for being a part of Makers and Mystics. I'm excited to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on today. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your latest release, Evergreen, and some of your creative process going into this album and just unpacking the songs. I just recently connected with it, and I really love what you've done. Oh, thank you. Thanks. So tell me some about the concept behind Evergreen. Let's just dive right in. Sure. Well, I like to make records based on themes, and I usually come into pre-production and writing even with some kind of concept, and uh, Evergreen is certainly no exception. I actually wrote that song first of the whole collection, and that was sort of the whole album flowed from the track Evergreen, which is the opening track and the title track. And it really just came out of um, wrestling with my belief, which has always been a, a dimension of my faith journey. but. I had really been in several years of, I mean, the brink of nihilism, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I was just starting to kind of crawl out of that, crawl away from that ledge (laughs) in particular. (laughs) And Evergreen came about because I I had read uh, an idea in a Jewish Midrash account of Genesis. And Midrash is like a storytelling tradition in the Jewish tradition about around Old Testament stories. So like interpretations, basically, this might have meant this or it might have meant this, you know, and um, was reading a Midrash account of Genesis. And it and it said that the sycamore tree, the fig trees, so sycamore fruit tree and fig trees are the, are one of the same in the scripture, apparently, which I didn't know. And that the tree of life in the garden was probably a sycamore fig tree, which is the same tree that Zacchaeus climbed to see Jesus above the crowds. And I've always felt very closely tied to that story of Zacchaeus. It feels like me, you know, like I can never seem to get a glimpse of God. I'm always trying to find some tree to climb, you know. And so Mm -hmm. Evergreen became 
that tree for me. The record was like me trying to, you know, find my way up there. And so that was kind of where the concept came about. The tree of life is evergreen um, because the sycamore fig tree is an evergreen tree. And mm. I don't know of many fruit bearing evergreen trees, but apparently um, they exist in, in Jesus, you know, home region. And I thought that was beautiful and like an incredible analogy for not only for life itself, but for faith, you know. So that was mm -hmm. kind of how the record came about. You mentioned that this album really came out of a season of wrestling through and deconstructing a lot of earlier beliefs that you had held and come into a place of rediscovering your faith. Can you tell me more about how that played in to the making of this album? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I mean, I was writing it in the middle of all of that. I had, I, when I started writing the album, I had been in some pretty serious therapy for a while. I've always done, well, on and off for about 10 years, I've done talk therapy and had counselors and this was more like I, I had started to see somebody who worked with trauma patients and PTSD patients because I was starting to manifest all of these symptoms and issues to due to, I mean, the anxiety that was created by a lot of my upbringing. Um, I didn't know that's what it was creating it until I dove in, I guess, with those, those therapists I was fortunate to work with. But so while I was writing it, I had just come off of a year and a half or so of really intense work and digging into the fundamentalism and spiritual abuse of my past because mm. I really did grow up in a community which was spiritually abusive in a lot of ways. And one of those ways being that, you know, the most obvious one to me is just that our beliefs about women were so wrong. I mean, we were, women were not allowed to pray out loud in front of their own male children, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I had ingested so much crap and so much um, <laughs> sad, sad ideas about myself and about God and about the church and the world. And we were, we were very exclusive and didn't let anyone in. And we were insular and didn't marry outside or work outside of our community. And so coming out of that, you know, many years later, actually took a lot more work than I was anticipating. And so as I wrote these songs, I was kind of in real time describing what was happening inside me uh, through all this therapy and, and counsel and work that I was doing. And so, for example, Deliverer, which is the second track, and I actually wrote Evergreen and Deliverer in the same two-day period with, with one person named uh, Brian Brown. And Deliverer is a sort of apophatic song, which for anybody who's never heard that word, it means like the process of describing God by what God is not rather mm -hmm. than what God is, it tends mm -hmm. to be more accurate because our, our, at least I believe that it does, because our statements of affirmation actually always fall short. And so you can kind of chip away at the marble a little bit if you just say, you're not this, you're not this, you're not mm -hmm. this. And so the song, you know, says, you are not possessive, you respect all things. And I probably got more <laughs> flack for that one <laughs> line in my song wow. than I ever have about anything I've ever said on Twitter or Facebook, which if anybody who follows me who's listening, they know that I, I speak my mind. But um, I got that from Thomas Merton, who says that your, you know, your pure flame of love respects all things that it has made. And mm. that, he, that, that God extends freedom to the things that he creates. 
um, out of respect for them and what he made them to be as image bearers and you know us in particular obviously and so anyway the the record really was written almost in real time for the most part there was one song I wrote 10 years ago and the rest of them were all from that one year really mm -hmm. of of working through all that stuff well it's really interesting that you brought up that lyric in deliver because when I heard that, my heart came alive. It was the most compelling lyric I have heard <laughs> in a worship context in a long time. And, I, wow. and that's honestly, it was that lyric that made me really want to reach out and have this conversation with you because I was like, this is brilliant. Nobody else is approaching a devotional or a worship-inspired song from this angle. And I, I just want to commend you, even on your bravery and, and, and just writing from that perspective, because I found it extremely liberating. Wow, I'm so <laughs> glad to hear that. I mean, I think what a lot of people don't know, and I, I have such sympathy for this because I, 10 years ago, would have been that person typing, like, how could you say such a thing? God is in control of me and my life. And I like that, that I feel like God controls my every move. And, um, you know, a lot of people do feel that way. They do believe that way. But I, I had to divorce myself from the concept of a God who looked a lot more like an abusive husband than like an affectionate father. And what I've begun to see as I've renewed my relationship to the scriptures in particular is that everything in the Bible has to be read through the lens of Christ. Christ is the fullest revelation of who God is. And I think that's actually the most historic way to read the book. But I really got sidetracked into a way of reading it that was much more. Um, I don't know, ironically, it was like more black and white, but less specific somehow. But Jesus is the fullest revelation of God's love. And so as I read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, it changed a lot of my beliefs and ideas about what I was reading. And I, you know, I've been fortunate and blessed to find amazing teachers who, who know the word and some Jewish teachers and some Christian teachers who know how to read this book, how to, how to process what types of literature inside it and all of that. And as I did that, I really had to break up with those ideas. I had to break up with that God I had made in my own image, you know? I made God in my image as a, a petty, inconsistent, manipulative <laughs> being. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I just, you can't sell me on that idea of God anymore. I don't care how you're reading the Bible, if it's not coming through a lens of who Christ came to show us that God has always been, mm -hmm. then I don't buy it. find that your music and your songwriting really played into your own healing process of coming through some of that. Absolutely. I mean, I I in particular the actual making of the tracks cuz I I produce all of my own music and there's not a lot of female producers out there incidentally. I think it's less than 5% of the business or something like that. But mm. I've grown in knowledge and the skills to do that and it, it I think that was the most cathartic piece because the music itself, I think, reflects the emotion of the words and really works in tandem with those lyrics to convey a sense of where my heart has been. Um, I remember when I was tracking the song Unfolding, which is the sixth track on the record, I think, and it kind of describes what it has felt like for me to really deal with my existential fear because I, what I've realized is that my going to the brink of nihilism over and over actually has a lot to do with the fact 
that I just have deep existential fears and questions. And I think mm. a lot of us do, and we don't really give them room to breathe. And then some point in our life when crisis comes, those questions come and sort of like uh, implode our our ability to have a, a sense of safety in the universe, you know? And so that's what happened to me because I was never lo- allowing those questions to breathe. They sort of exploded and it imploded me a little bit. And so yeah. unfolding was like the lyrical journey of what that felt like. But then I felt like making the music really score that idea as a film score would score a plot, you know, mm-hmm. um, was so cathartic to play my feelings, to record my feelings, to um, produce them, not just sing them. So the whole process was so medicinal, I guess. What you've done is you've brought these existential anxieties or these existential questions to the place of worship. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that just seems to make so much sense to me. Mm-hmm. And often I think that our idea of worship is the place where we just have all the answers or we say what we know, but you've mm-hmm. kind of brought what you don't know into the place of worship. And for me, I find that to be very nourishing. I think I came to a place where I finally realized if I had been taught my whole life that God knows everything and witnesses even the most intimate details about who I am and what what I'm thinking, then me coming to God with anything less than all of what is there is pretense and it, it inhibits growth in faith, you know, because God, I think, is interested in everything about us, not just our lip service or saying, you know, like you said, the things that we know or that we're told we're supposed to know or whatever. I just lost all my fear, basically. I was like, I don't know what I'm afraid of. If you already know, why am I scared to tell you? sadness and and just a full range of the human emotion and 
I think I read even um, maybe this was on your your website, but you you talked about you had begun to look at your emotions with compassion and mm-hmm. allowed them to exist yeah. uh, in harmony or tension, mm-hmm. and uh, and you even came to a place I think where you said you found a healthy. Um, interaction with anger. Can you tell yeah. me how all of those emotions, good and bad, have played into your worship? Well, firstly, this isn't meant as a correction, but there really are no bad emotions. That's what I uh, first had yeah, to yeah. learn, you know, and it's not something that we're so ingrained with, is that there's mm-hmm. some feelings that are good and there are some that are bad, and so there are some that you banish and there are some that you let live yeah. with you. But what happens, and what happened to me, is that you know, anger being the number one sort of bad emotion that I think women in particular have a trouble, they have trouble accessing. What happens is when you shove that down long enough, it becomes something um, with a kind of a power that surprises you. So you don't allow it to sit at your table. You don't live with it compassionately. It becomes a seething lava, you know, waiting Mm. to erupt. Mm-hmm. Same with grief. It's like grief looks a lot different than anger, maybe, but grief can make people do some really interesting and per- perhaps terrible things because they're not giving it room to breathe. They're not living compassionately with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have people like that in my life who hurt people who love them over and over because they're sad, but they can't access that sadness and therefore it rules them. And so that's what I found is that the more that I banish emotions, whether I perceive them as negative or positive, the more that those emotions actually take control over me instead of the other way around. And so as I learned to, as I, as you said, you know, live compassionately with them, give them voice, allow them to be part of my whole person um, without judgment of them, then they stopped ruling my actions and my decisions and my thought processes because they're actually just a piece of the normal human experience and anger is not bad it's just a thing that exists and when you shove it down it becomes bitterness and rage Mm. and seething and contempt and all these things that we think of when we say the word anger but anger is actually not any of those things on its own so I guess, you know, it's all just part of the process I'm going through I've not only deconstructed my belief but also you know, just the framework with which I looked at me and other people. And I think it all has worked together. And mm-hmm. I've just found that the, the more compassion I can exhibit to myself, the more I'm likely to exhibit to other people. That's mm-hmm. very true for me. And I also think I'm accessing and seeing the compassion of God in a whole different way, because I used to think of him as some, you know, like a rage ball, like the eye of Sauron, you know. <laughs> and. I don't believe that to be the case anymore. In the garden of our Savior, no flower grows unseen. His kindness rains like water on every humble seed. No For so many people, the need to belong at some point can be challenged by our own personal discovery and our own growth right. and, our, and our own challenges. And I think 
especially for those of us in some measure of leadership or those that are in front of people mm -hmm. and, and you know uh, especially when they deal with things of the faith or spiritual things that people are looking to for guidance sometimes when the conclusions that we come to maybe don't jive with the accepted norm of the party line there becomes a challenge you know yeah um, just that tension between belonging and authenticity and I'm curious to know, when you were in the throes of your deconstruction process, did you find a difficulty to maintain a sense of belonging within the body of believers when you were at the same time departing from some of your foundational beliefs from that community? I definitely did. I mean, I'm a Catholic, so there is a little bit more birth given, you know, just in a, even like in a theoretical sense. There's lots of different types of Catholic thinkers. There's social justice Catholics and nearly Calvinist Catholics, and then there's the mystics, and then there's, you know, the monks, and all these different kinds of people that, that choose different spiritual disciplines, and it's all considered to be part of the acceptable path, you know? Mm -hmm. But that's in theory. In real mm -hmm. life, in real life on the ground with human beings, it's not always that um, permissive, you know? And I, I definitely... I think it, it actually contributed in great part to the panic and the anxiety was the fact that I felt myself losing that sense of belonging, that, that I realized all of a sudden how much stock I placed in that and how much that had defined my life and who I was. And as I felt it slipping away from me, I lost all my sense of mooring. It was kind of like someone cut my line and I was just floating out into space and it terrified me, you know, pr frankly. I just, and I did find people for sure um, who sympathized or empathized or had been there before or who were there then, but no, no body of people where I could go on a Sunday and feel that I was bringing my whole self to the, yeah. the gathering. And one thing I've thought, you know, a lot about as I've experienced that is that you know, when we have children, and I have a four-year-old and a six-month-old, a seven-month-old, and there's, you know, Will's starting to ask questions, obviously, about God, and we're, we're just trying to muddle our way through how to help <laughs> him think through this stuff and at his age and at appropriate level and all that. And one of the things I've had on my mind and heart is that, you know, what was taught to me first as a child was belief. But I think I, I wish it had been belonging first. I feel like I wish I had been taught that I belong to God and to my family and to my church, regardless of what I believe. Mm -hmm. And that's not really the way we structure our bodies. It's like, you believe this, you sign off on the checklist of, you know, statements, and then you belong here. Um, but the best parental love, and I do have this from my parents, is no matter how you behave, no matter who you think you are, no matter what you do, you belong to me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that ought to be the rule for church, too. Um, mm -hmm. If it was, then I think our divergences of belief wouldn't be so panic-inducing in some of us who go like, oh my gosh, like I'm questioning this, and now I can't be myself around this person, and they're judging right. me, and blah, blah, blah. And some of that might not even really be accurate. It's like, but because our sense of belonging is only sort of it's anchored in our belief then when we our beliefs change we lose that sense but we really oughtn't lose it but i think that's how most churches are just frankly structured what they teach us at a young age is how to believe in order to belong mm -hmm. and i don't think that was helpful to me um in the end but i'm just hoping so we we've we've gone really far out of our way of course to try not to swing to extremes but with our son we we try to stress to him that the reason he exists is the love of God 
and our love you know and so it's like that's the reason for your existence it's where your destiny is it's where mm -hmm. you come from it's your origin and it's your your destination is just is love and communion and so that's been our first thing we've taught him um mm -hmm. and i hope it sticks because i know he will change i know he will go through phases and maybe leave who knows you know like i don't know yeah. Uh, yeah. but i want him to know that in his heart yeah what you said reminds me of Amy Jill Levine. I don't know oh if you're familiar gosh, with her. Oh my I love her so much. When <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about the teachers I've found about the scriptures, she was yeah. the first name that came to my mind. Oh, I absolutely. absolutely love her. Oh yeah, my gosh. She's amazing. But I, I first heard her on another podcast. I think it was called The Bible for Normal People. Oh yeah, I love that one too. Pete, <laughs> and, uh, Pete Enns is another one of those people for me. Yeah, teachers, yeah. So. Well, she said something uh, in an interview she was doing with them and uh, they asked her, I think specifically, you know, do you have any thoughts for the Protestant church, you know? And she said, she thought about it for a minute. She said, well, I think the Protestant church uh, would do well to learn how to argue better. Mm -hmm. and, and they said, well, what do you mean? You know, and she says, well, for instance, in the Jewish community, you know, all the rabbis will get together and, and we'll surround a scripture, you know, seven different ways and argue its interpretation and what it means. And she said, even our heretics are our mm -hmm. heretics, you know, but she <laughs> Man, said, that's uh, beautiful. I love uh, it so much. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and she said, but, but in the Protestant tradition, um, a lot of times if you disagree with your pastor, you go to the church on the next block and never talk yeah, again. Exactly. You know, and it was, it was, the community was more doctrinally based yes. than communally. Like you said, belonging, uh, giving place to belief rather yep. than the other way around. Absolutely. I think that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I resonate with that totally. Me too. Um, I love her. I, I saw her in Nashville at a show called Tokens, and it's sort of an irreverent spiritual review, sort of in the vein of like a Prairie Home Companion type of show. Yeah, and yeah. they always have a guest who speaks on something and, and does like a little Q&A about what they do. And she was on the, the first time I played there, she was there and I just was mesmerized because mm. she reignited, honestly, she reignited my interest in the Bible because yeah. I had come so far from where I had seen it as a child, but I didn't know how to look at it anymore. I was like, I don't know what place to give this. I don't know how to have it in my life without triggering all of these feelings, and, you know, fears. And she and, and Pete Enns as well, who runs that mm -hmm. podcast as you, that you mentioned, are two people who have resurrected my relationship to the scripture. And I'm yeah. so grateful. And she just... Oh, I love her. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I've been reading her book, Short Stories by Jesus, mm. which is really good, really so good. about some of the musical influences and some of the creative choices that you made on the record Evergreen. One of which I'll start with that stood out to me is you have a lot of Irish influences through some of the songs, particularly on Wounded Healer. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love for you to tell me some about the sound palettes that you chose. Sure. So I leaned into that pretty heavily on this album in spots. And I mean, it's always there because I, I do have that influence in it. It comes from, well, so I'm, I'm half Syrian and actually Celtic and Arabic music have a lot of similarities and overlap, which I now know is because of the trade routes in, you know, pre-industrial area, you know, 
spice mm -hmm. trading and such. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of cultural exchange that happens in that kind of situation. And so um, I grew up with Arabic music. My dad was from Syria. He used to play a lot of songs and records that he grew up with. And then when I was 12 or 13, I discovered Irish music. My mom is part Irish, but she doesn't. She didn't really listen to that. But I, I discovered it because I had a Columbia House membership, which is something that most people under the age of 25 or maybe even 30 <laughs> wouldn't remember. But you know, when you join one of those, you get 12 CDs for like a dollar, and yeah. I would just try stuff. I would just join all of them and try a bunch of things. And so I ordered, I think, a record by. Well, it was like a compilation. It was like Celtic Spirit, and it was like all these different people, Connie Dover and. And Minogue and all these people and so there was this awakening I had honestly spiritually I look back I see it's a spiritual awakening I had but I didn't understand mm -hmm. what was happening but I would put on records like that and put my headphones on and lay on the floor and just lie in a trance and just be transported into I, I guess just a spiritual <laughs> trance I don't know it was it was yeah. mesmerizing for me and I became enamored of it to the point where, you know, I only listened to that for a long time. And I went to see Riverdance on Broadway and I went to see Lord of the Dance and I went to see, and I know those aren't strictly considered pure Irish things, but you know, I just was eating up anything I could get my hands on. And yeah. I find that, you know, as years have gone by and I've kind of, it's resettled into the balance and the landscape of what I listen to, um, that that music is really some of the most stirring and prayer inducing music that I can think of. and. So when I write, I mean, I can't help but have it as an influence because of how strongly it, it was in my life at that time. But I did lean into it for this album because I wanted to evoke the thin place of Ireland. And I went to Ireland last summer and that was, oh, I mean, Ireland and Scotland and England, but Ireland and Scotland in particular, I remember I, I would drive around and just think, have you ever heard of the, the phrase thin places? Yes, yes. So like... Very, very familiar. Yeah, the concept being, you know, just for anybody who hasn't heard of it, that there are some places on the, on the physical earth that where the boundary between heaven and earth is blurred and it is kind of thin, you know, and you can sort of feel transcendent of, of our surroundings. And I drove from Inverness, Scotland to Glencoe, which is one of the most famous glens in Scotland, and you pass Loch Ness to drive there. And I mean, I thought I was going to die. It was like a three-hour drive on these tiny, tiny mountain roads with no railings, and people are just speeding down them, and I'm, I'm driving on the other side of the road, and this, I ended up in a weird, like, James Bond Audi, because it's the only car they had left, which was awesome, because Skyfall, you know, it was cool. Uh, but yeah. anyway, I got to Glencoe and thought, like, I don't ever want to leave, but you have to leave. And that's that's the, the sensation that Celtic music gives me, is that I'm, I'm yeah. like, I'm here, I don't want to leave, but I have to go back down the mountain, you know? And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I leaned into it because I felt like I wanted to evoke that in several places. And w Wounded Healer was one of those places, and then um, Emmanuel Sand was one of those places, mm -hmm. which is one of the last tracks. It's a hymn that my grandmother loved. But with Wounded Healer in particular, I thought, okay, I want to do everything Celtic except the instrumentation. So I didn't use any Celtic instruments, but we went for that rhythm and melody pretty hard. Well, Audrey, thank you so much for joining us on Makers and Mystics. Yeah. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I have enjoyed it as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Links to Audrey's website and to the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective are in the show notes of this episode. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.